0: You're listening to the Young Money Podcast. I'm Cameron Ho, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co host, Daniel Lane. The title of today's show is The Signal Versus the Noise, and we're going to talk about how we can harness human behavior and psychology to become better investors. The thing is, our brain has developed since the caveman days to help us respond to different situations. And the way that we're programmed affects every element of our lives, including how we spend, how we save, and how we invest. So today, we're going to consider some of the following questions. What common mistakes are investors prone to make and how can we avoid them? Is it important to follow the news and check stock prices every day, or are those things just a distraction? And how can we take or exploit the ways our brains are wired to achieve better success at the world of investing? We're joined in the studio today by some very special guests. We have Nick Armit, who is Fidelity's Head of Corporate and Investment Writing. In addition to leading the team which produces market commentary and analysis for our clients, he has also written extensively on the topic of behavioral investing. Nick, welcome. Thank you. Could you please tell us a little bit more about what you do at the company and your involvement with behavioral investing? Yes,
1: I run the investment communications team and we are a voice for the investment teams. Uh, I personally have written a column on behavioral investing. It's appeared on the Fidelity website. Right.
0: And we also have Matthew Jennings, who is an investment director specializing in European equities. He's also been involved in a project researching how uh, human behavior affects the world of investment. Is that right?
2: Yes, that's right. We're, it's something we're looking at very closely at the moment in the investment team.
0: OK. And what do you do in general in your role as investment director?
2: Well, the investment director role is about explaining the, um, h- how our portfolio managers are setting up the portfolios, going and speaking to clients, talking to them about themes in the market, investments we're making, and, and, and trying to you know really just be that um, interface between the the, uh, the investment strategies and the, uh, the clients outside the organization.
0: Okay, perfect. So let's start with Nick with just a general question What are behavioral biases?
1: Yes, good question. Uh, behavioral biases are really just cognitive shortcuts that human beings, all human beings, are prone to making. Um, oftentimes, these are uh, positive shortcuts with positive outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but increasingly, in the modern world, and, and particularly in the world of finance, these shortcuts have negative outcomes Right, um, because they tend to be um, emotional or automatic shortcuts which are not fully thought through, and they can have negative outcomes from an investing perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So what might some of those negative outcomes be, say, for a personal investor managing their portfolio at home? Well,
1: I guess, um, that goes into that question goes into what some of the biases are, right. and so some of the negative biases that can affect investors are things like herding, are things like loss aversion, um, and overconfidence, and also confirmation bias. Right. Uh, those some of those require a little bit of explanation. Some of them are probably more uh, intuitive. Herding is when you tend to copy what a lot of other investors are doing mm-hmm. um, and that can make you prone and exposed to groupthink. Um, right. and when that situation turns around or there's a, a bubble in the market which collapses mm-hmm. you can then be exposed to quite a big loss in your investment portfolio right. so that's one big one to be aware of and, and we see that in markets mm-hmm. uh, on a recurring basis we see these bubbles um, uh, rise and grow and collapse in markets so that's mm-hmm. one of the key um, uh, biases that investors should be aware of. If
2: I could yeah. just com- come in there because as well as presenting risks to investors, that mm-hmm. type of behavior al- also presents significant opportunities to people. Right. C- and you know, One of the strategies that I work closely on is a contrarian strategy and that means that we're trying to go against the herd. We're trying to really find those areas of the market that people have fallen out of love with that are very unfashionable mm-hmm. but where we think things might not be actually as bad as as the market consensus would would uh, would have it and the, and and so what we find often is when a consensus emerges is that it can become kind of over exaggerated and 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 market prices can react in a very somewhat you know an emotional way mm-hmm. and become really detached from the reality of the situation so of course there are always some better businesses than the uh, and some worse businesses when you know when you are looking at stocks, but they're not always valued fairly, and so if you have a very strong consensus that one industry, let's say, for example, banking mm-hmm. is not a good industry industry to be invested in, mm-hmm. then what what you can find is that the share prices overreact to that um, to that consensus view, because and and it's to do really with how human beings have are social socialized animals. We're primates. And primates exist and have, and have been evolutionarily successful because we've learned to cooperate and work well in groups. Okay. And so making yourself an outsider and going against the group mm. um, for many, many millennia was actually a very bad idea because it meant that you were the last person to eat and your children weren't looked <laughs> after. And, and so there were very clear and visceral downsides to going against the group, um, the group behavior. Right. Now, wh- the problem is that, that when you translate that biological impulse to a m- much more complex environment like capital markets, the outcomes can be very different and, let's say, suboptimal. Okay. So that's, that's one of the sort of recurring things throughout these biases, is that there are often good reasons for them being there when you th- sort of think about the broader way that human beings and, and human society is set up. But actually, it's when you, when you translate that into a very complex, uncertain environment you know these impulses do not, often don't serve us as well as they might do in a different environment let's mm-hmm. say in much smaller group sizes okay. when our main concerns are feeding ourselves and not being eaten and so on you know those so in that environment a herd instinct is actually a great thing to have because it you know makes you much safer basically not so much you know when when you're an investor because you can end up buying these overvalued securities and ignoring mm-hmm. other potentially quite attractive investment opportunities
3: Right. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there that a lot of these biases, well, by virtue of biases, they're probably innate or they're our yeah. natural first point of call. Yeah. Um. I mean, like you, you touched on confirmation bias, kind of the idea that we see what we want to see, or mm-hmm. if we're trying to win an argument, we'll probably type in a very loaded question to Google in order to <laughs> give us give us the answer yeah. that we think is exactly.
1: Right. And that's a very interesting bias in, in terms of investment because you can fall in love with an investment idea, or you can become emotionally attached to that idea. Um, so when, for example, you uh, uh, invest in a stock, you can only see the, the the good news flow that comes out in relation to that stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and you become a little bit uh, selective. Um, now, the way to get around that is to actively seek the opposite view and, and actively seek information that might feel uncomfortable, but actually disagrees with your initial view. You know, you should be looking for what are the reasons to perhaps sell this investment as opposed to what are always the reasons to hang on um, and, and always have those two it's a little bit like playing devil's advocate with yourself mm. but making sure that you can uh, embrace the, the negative view as well as the positive view in terms of your investments
3: and just more broadly do you, is there is there something that we could use a sort of mechanism to make us less prone to making these um, decisions based on emotion because essentially that's that's what we're doing when we fall prey to our biases, whether rightly or wrongly. It's, it's probably worth, at this point,
1: yeah, making the distinction between um, in the literature, um, and, and this is something that comes out quite strongly in Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, which I would recommend as 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 the key text to to introduce people to 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 this area. Um, but one of the key distinctions he makes and is made within uh, within all psych- psychology literature is this idea between. System one and system two. So that's that human beings have these two systems for thinking, and system one is really this automatic um, shortcut system, and it's that primitive system that is the fear or flight response. And it's uh, uh, as Matt alluded to, it stood us in good stead for for millions of years, and and that is our quick response to a situation, and it's often the right response, um, or it has been for many years, Um, but. we also have the system two, which is um, the calculating part of our brains. That part of the brain that we need to um, bring in when we're doing, you know, a long, complicated multiplication. Um, it's that sit-down part of the brain which um, is more considered and rational, and, and it's that part of the brain that we really need to engage when we're thinking about investments much more and look at the probabilities rather than invest emotionally with system one.
2: Mm. Yeah, exactly, and, and, and that's actually a very difficult thing to do because these biases or behaviours that we have are very, very deeply ingrained for some of the reasons that I've mentioned before and we're not always set up to, um, to engage in, a, in, a, in that rational, thoughtful, deliberate and slow way. And part of the reason for that is that's much more psychologically effortful. It's much more costly in terms of energy, and you know, mm. uh, the, the, the the type of energy that it takes to do a, a long multiplication task versus, you know, uh, saying what what you what you want for dinner when you're given two choices. You know, you're you're using a lot more mental energy, and so of course, you know, successful kind of organisms are trying to things as efficiently using as less as 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 little energy as possible and so you need to you need to really kind of what i would say is you need to design an investment process that um is introduces an element of discipline and and being systematic in when you're making these decisions not doing it on the spur of the moment because you read something in the newspaper that really resonated with you but but doing it in a considered way that looks at the p- problem from a variety of different angles and over over a maybe over a period of time so you're not you know you're not coming out of one particular emotional state and because you're feeling great that morning because you've just you know had a great cup of coffee or you're feeling de- you know desperate, in the evening, because you've just you know uh, you know lost an argument at work or something, and you're feeling much more negative. So, so you want to try and design some process for yourself that irons out these kind of emotion, this emotional volatility that we all right. experience mm-hmm. to different extent. Some people are much mm-hmm. less emotionally volatile than than others, of course. But you know we will all know that. But um, but but mo- but most of us are to you know will be influenced by our emotional state in, in terms mm-hmm. of the decisions we're making, yeah. and so yeah, I would I would suggest that um, if people are, m- are making investment decisions for themselves and for the, their families, that they do do some planning, do some pre planning around it, put some regular time aside maybe to, for doing it, and have some kind of systematic way of approaching the problem. This might include a checklist. This is a favourite kind of suggestion dealing with these biases but don't just well i would say don't just rely on your instincts because your instincts are effectively like a collection of biases yeah. you know right. and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work
0: so what what would be on on a checklist that an investor might want to have ready
2: yeah well to to some extent that's a, uh, a an element of personal preference i mean right. you have to be a little bit careful in terms of giving uh, advice in these sorts of situations because there's no Mad, one magical checklist that works in all situations for every d- every different it's, it's type ha- of investment. Having a checklist, there's a start point. People <laughs> yeah. don't have checklists. That's right.
1: the problem. Yes. And it's it's, a, it's introducing an element of um, discipline uh, okay. and, and being more systematic about your investments. That right. takes out the emotion in itself. Okay. Um, and a good example of of a of a, t- of a time and a bias where people get very emotional. It's when there's a big fall in the market. So when mm-hmm. we see market volatility and market declines,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, that is a time when people get very emotional because they feel the pain of that loss. Right. And indeed, loss aversion is, is, is another um, key bias that investors should be aware of. Um, and the research tends to indicate that we feel the sting from a loss about twice as strongly uh, as the rewards from a gain. Right. So um, you know, if your investments are doing well, Mm-hmm. then everything's fine and rosy in the garden but you know when that loss comes along and hits you you need to be prepared and anticipate that you're going to have this emotional reaction to either the market falling or your mm-hmm. investment portfolio falling mm-hmm. and you need mm-hmm. to have something in place ideally that yeah. is a little bit more systematic in terms of dealing with that rather than just the knee-jerk reaction to that and maybe selling because selling at that point He'd be selling at exactly the wrong time and that is a behaviour right. that we see in markets consistently because um, actually that could be um, uh, from a contrarian perspective the time to buy.
2: Yeah absolutely. I think it, just going back to the checklist I mean I'm keen to offer some sort of useful advice rather than just saying oh that's a, a difficult question. <laughs> just, uh, just some, some well, no, what, but, what
0: thing, things people might consider because we can't give well, specific advice. Well
2: but. I would say if you're investing well Whatever type of investment you're making, I would say, the purpose of the checklist should be to identify the reasons that you're making that investment. Yeah. So you, so then you're accountable to your future self. So if it goes wrong and there's a yeah. fall in the market, what well, if there's a fall in the market or in the price of the thing that you bought, then really what is happening is that the market is offering you the opportunity to increase your position at a higher price. If your thesis or, still holds. But you can only yeah. know that if your thesis still holds, Holds honestly. If you have a record of your thesis, yeah. okay. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the first rule: is write down the reason that you're making this trade. Mm-hmm. And if you if you if you apply this to investing in companies, then it could be something like: I expect the uh, new product that this business is launching to be extremely p- popular to an extent way beyond what people are currently expecting, and and therefore you know the earnings of the company are underestimated and could could rise significantly which will lead to a rising share price. That's a that's a sort of a what I would say is a classic PI investment thesis. Mm-hmm. Those types of investment theses are not always very successful because well firstly because it's very hard to estimate to what extent others in the market are already expecting that product launch to be successful or mm-hmm. unsuccessful so so determining what is already priced into that company's existing share price today i what what do you what in terms of future growth are you paying for today yes that's a very difficult thing to uh, disaggregate from everything else and that's one of the things that our you know investors at fidelity spend a lot of time trying trying to do um, but the po- the point is be honest with yourself as to why you're making this investment because only then will you know whether in the future you should be buying more or selling it or, or, or what have you. I
1: think that's key, to have some buy criteria and some sell criteria. Right. and a, a really important point around the buy criteria is you don't need a long list. Mm-hmm. You'll probably only need about two or three key reasons as to why you want to buy a company. Yeah. Um, because once you start adding reasons beyond that you're really just starting to get into the process of reassuring yourself by adding more reasons (laughs) and and what we actually find from the literature is there probably is only two or three reasons to do anything or or to buy a company and and those are the key reasons that are going to be responsible for that company outperforming Mm -hmm. Um, and indeed our own analysts are encouraged when they write their own buy notes Mm -hmm. um, to uh, keep it to two or three key reasons as to why that company is uh, predicted to be a good investment or not okay.
0: and there are even some ways if if that process is even too difficult there are some strategies you can use such as cost averaging to completely take the decision out of when you buy for example is that right
1: absolutely cost averaging is as as uh, a way of, of of taking the emotion out of investment because mm-hmm. you are you're, you you know you move away from saying as the is the market too high or too low right now? You're averaging your yep. investment out across the market, and you're buying all the different market levels. Um, okay. So there is, it's, it's another way of being systematic about your investment. Right. You're making that regular investment no matter what.
0: Yeah. So just to confirm for our readers, cost averaging is a practice where you will, at the start, decide that you're going to buy a set amount or mm. put a set amount of money into the markets at regular intervals. Is that uh, yeah, I think
2: so. It's, it's really. What you're trying to do is take out the timing effect, uh, because yeah. you know, as everyone knows, timing the market is incredibly difficult and probably not possible for a human being, or <laughs> certainly not for a computer to do. So, um, it's it's recognizing that, that 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 coming into the market on day one with all of your life savings. Uh, is that you know you you're there therefore exposed to what happens on day two or day three, but if you're if you're coming in gradually over a period of weeks or months depending on you know your objectives, then that is a lower risk way in terms of the risk of of, of getting the timing wrong or, or being un- unlucky really with 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 the timing, and of course you know that works to your in your benefit as much as it. W- you know on average as much as it works to your detriment sometimes you'll wish that you'd come in come in day one with a big investment because the market's going up but if you believe that you know if you believe that you can't predict the markets move on a kind of over over shorter time periods which i would say is almost um is, is almost well it's pretty clear from the literature that that people aren't gifted with that ability then um then, then averaging in is a good idea and also if you if you own something and it's getting cheaper well and this comes back to what we were saying before and it's getting cheaper um in a way that doesn't destroy the investment case that you've bought into mm-hmm. so because the stocks become coming out of favor for maybe short term operational difficulties you know let's say the weather has impacted a retailers quarterly sales or something but but you bought something because you think in five years this is a tremendously well-placed business the management has an excellent track record then you know a, w- a weather related profit warning which is quite common in the retail sector um would be an opportunity to buy more and average down your position perhaps if you're making if you're making a loss right. but then the problem is that if you don't write that investment thesis down and you don't know why you bought the thing in the first place, then you know, have no way of making a decision later on as to whether you've got an, an opportunity yeah. to increase your position or, or not. And the more general
1: point I would make there is people tend to um, run their losers and cut their winners, mm-hmm. um, and they should do the opposite. You sh- what you should do is run your winners, the, 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 the investments that are showing you a profit. Yeah. Um, and, and cut your losing positions right. and, and the reason for that is, is, is partly due to loss aversion which I mentioned before um, people are more conservative when they're in the black mm-hmm. uh, and they're willing to take more risk when they're in the red okay. um, and it's totally counterintuitive but yeah. it's what human beings do and, um, it's, and it's
2: to do with the fact that we're so reluctant to lock in that loss exactly. because we'll feel it so pain, painfully yeah. that actually what we're more inclined to do is sort of go, oh the you know, I'm just going to double down on my investment yep. and hope we get back to where we started, and then I can sell. You see that all the, t- the time, and it doesn't always work. Let's put it and that and way. And I think what investors should be challenging themselves
1: to do is actually to 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 to, to get out of a losing position if it, if the thesis just doesn't hold anymore yep. and stop yep. running it until it, it it turns back to a profit because it may never do. Yep. And but then equally is to run the winners and not be. Um, uh, uh, prone to selling those too early.
2: I can um, give you an example from my own uh, personal history. This is um, before I worked for Fidelity. I have to make that clear. But um, <laughs> so I, I I used to own shares in a, uh, a very small mining company. This is on my personal a- account, and um, and the reason that I own the shares was with was, was that the the. Uh, the company was intending to reopen a mine which had been closed for uh, a couple of decades in a very well-established part of Spain that had been kind of producing copper for, for many, many years. But gradu- but over time, the um, the opening date got pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. Of course, the company's management always had a very good reason why the date was being pushed back. But as time went on, of course, they were burning through cash and they kept coming back to shareholders saying we need more funds to you know keep the project alive and so the you know shareholders got diluted and and more shares were issued and the price was going down and down and down and and that presents a very interesting from a psych- psychologist's perspective an interesting dilemma to an existing inbe- investor because I had kind of in in my mind, my investment thesis was I'm going to own these shares until the mines open, um, and then um, and then I'll sell. But if if you don't, but what I didn't do was say, and I'm going to say a reasonable amount of time to expect this mine to be open in is two years. And so the mm. the, the date get getting pushed back and back and back, and my losses were getting bigger and bigger. And what I was doing at each stage was I was so distressed by the fact that even if the mine got open now, then I wouldn't make back what I had originally invested. but right. I was buying more and more on my on my way down, and that's a that's a that's basically what's called a value trap. And luckily, for me, well, I mean, I made a, a big loss eventually when I sold the position. But I um, I read another book that Nick recommended, Thinking Fast and Slow, and that's a, a, I would definitely second that recommendation. There's another book which is. I would say a little bit more approachable and it's certainly much shorter and it's written by James Montier and it's called the Little Book of behavioral investing and there's a, a a bit in that where he says if you if you were to imagine that you um you know you you were working on your uh, on your computer and you had your um your portfolio up on your screen. And you went away for, for a minute, and and your you know three-year-old kid was playing on your computer and accidentally deleted your whole portfolio, and then you and or sold your whole portfolio and then cashed it. How would you buy it back in exactly the same way that it was set up before you know it had been accidentally sold? And I and I and that's a really interesting question, right? And 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 I thought there is absolutely no way in hell that I would own these shares <laughs> if they were accidentally <laughs> sold from my account. Yeah. And that was a very strong signal that I shouldn't be owning that And I was just kind of being really just dragged down and, and I was just taking more and more risk because the, the thought of crystallising this loss was so emotionally difficult for me to imagine that... Um, yeah, that I was just basically throwing more and more money down this hole in the, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, in the yeah. ground. It's
1: very sim- similar to what people would recognize as a sunk cost, okay. as, yeah. as the sunk yeah. cost problem. Yeah. You know, you sunk the cost into it, and you want to make sure you get something back out of it. Yeah. And
3: that that's applicable to so many situations. Yeah, um, Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many little lines we tell ourselves, yeah. things like, oh, well, I'm in it now. Yeah. Or, no. um, oh, but I'll sell tomorrow. <laughs> or... And all these things I read a book um, The Art of Execution by Lee Freeman he's a, he's a fund of funds manager and he wrote a text on what his the fund managers in his fund what they had done what their best and worst trades were and he said they, even when pr- professional investors the guys who were um, you know maybe down 10% they were justified by saying well this is par for the course investments mm. go up and down yeah. when it went down 20% they were still saying the same thing but then they weren't buying in so they were, they were saying something, but they were actually feeling something different because if they really believed that, they would be buying. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, so do you think there's a sense of, actually, we start to kid ourselves? Um,
2: well, I think, I think what that shows is that even if you can recognise that, that, that what you're doing is not necessarily rational, it's still very difficult to actually mm. go ahead and act in that more rational way because what you're trying to do is overcome all of these sort of predispositions that we've accumulated over the over the centuries and and so you know this is unless you approach the problem in a way which recognizes that fact and 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 builds in some device to be rational so if if you're a fund manager and you have on your spreadsheet something saying if these if nothing Fundamentally changes in the operating conditions of the company and the shares fall, you know, 20% from the price today, then that's a good buying opportunity. Then when that happens, you have, you have a much better kind of chance of actually acting on that and making use of that work. Sure. The problem is that if you don't do that work in that preparation, then when that fall happens, what we'll do is is probably although we might say you know externally that it's unjustified and so on, we might think that does the market know something that I don't this sowing the seeds of doubt and you know and all of these biases kick in at that point and make it very difficult for us to to really i suppose be what an economist would say is as or a traditional economist would say is rational, and that's something that we haven't mentioned you know the fact that. Much of existing or at least traditional financial and economic theory makes this big sweeping assumption about human behaviour which is that people are rational profit allocators. Mm. Um, and it it's sort of, I mean everything that we, we're talking about here is sort of making the opposite argument. Um, and that is only now really kind of gaining... R- Proper and I would say deserved traction within mainstream economics and mainstream financial decision making, and so you know this is why we're looking at this in such a serious way at fidelity. And you know over the years, managers, professional managers, some, not all, will develop ways of managing against these biases. Um, But what we what we're really at the cusp of now is integrating this in a much more sort of profound and 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 fundamental way and um and and building on the insights that have you know that have been kind of uh generated by all this academic work Daniel Kahneman and you know and, and Amos Tversky and Richard Thaler and lots of psychologists and economists and others over the past sort of 50 or 60 years there's a huge amount of work now that we can kind of get a really good sense of what we can do to kind of improve judgment uh, how to use our judgment under uncertainty. Right. This is the point why it's so relevant to mm-hmm. investment because by definition you're you're dealing with a highly uncertain and complex environment. You can't possibly know all of the var- variables that are involved. Mm-hmm. Particularly, you know, and even it's even harder to do that as a private investor. Um, and you know, particularly at the moment or well, people are obsessed with the political uncertainty in the market and that seems to be paralyzing decision making in some ways because you know the market's been going up but the political environment seems to be getting more and more well risky let's say so what do you do with that information and mm. and, it, and and this is exactly why we need these concepts and these ideas to help us kind of through this sort of problem
3: mm. yeah i mean i should say at that point every- what we've been talking about—it's all available in a series of articles on the on the personal investing website called Invest Right. So, if our listeners are interested in learning anything about it, please um, feel sure free to search for that on our personal
0: investing website. Yeah, exactly. So, maybe just to summarize, um, what do you think is the key takeaway? What should people listening to our podcast today just try and re- remember if there's one thing?
1: I think the first thing is to recognise that they're prone to these things. Um, the second thing is to try to do something about it, and that's bringing in the you know the checklists, writing down your investment thesis, um, okay. you know, establishing some buy and sell criteria, yeah. um, embracing an outside view when you have one view on your position, embrace the opposite view, um, and uh, those are probably the key things I would that, yeah. that come to off the top. Of my I think account.
2: awareness is a great start, and I think people listening to this might. Think well. I know I'm not rational, but you know I'll, what I'll do is try to remember next time I'm making a decision, and, and that that should help me. Really, that's not enough because you know, be, as I said, because these biases are so deeply ingrained in our, you know, in our in our biology that it's it's difficult to sort of override them. Let's say so. Be systematic. Try to be disciplined, and and plan and prepare. Great.
0: Thank you. Okay. You're listening to the Young Money Podcast. Thank you very much to our special guests, Nick Armit and Matthew Jennings on the show as well, to the co-host, Daniel Ling. This information does not constitute a personal recommendation and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision, nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investment. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment, you should speak to an authorized financial advisor. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest.